Welcome to another edition of Talk On Talks Agriculture. I'm Dave Orr, and today I'm pleased to be joined by Tim Strubel from Rosie Lane Dairy, based in Watertown, Wisconsin. Tim is a partner at Rosie Lane Holstein and has graciously agreed to share some time with us to chat about the livestock feeding industry. Thanks for joining us today, Tim. You're welcome. Good to be along. Very good. So, Tim, um, maybe for our listeners, uh, you could give us a little bit of background on exactly who you are and, and maybe what Rosie Lane Dairy Holstein is. Okay. We uh, currently, Rosie Lane Holstein's is about a thousand cow dairy here in Watertown. Um, Lloyd Sr., Lloyd Holterman Sr., I should clarify, moved here in the 60s. Um, and Lloyd Jr., who was is one of my partners, um, was six years old at the time. Um, they moved here from Racine County. They are pushed out by um, basically urban sprawl, moved over here to Watertown, less populated. They bought 50 cows or so and some pigs, chickens, your normal farm. And at that time, just start things growing, changing, advancing, always on the leading edge of, of uh, what was new in the dairy industry. Lloyd went to University of Wisconsin, was there for Four years, came back to work together with his parents. That didn't quite work out. They moved away for a while. Moved back in uh, 79 or 80, I can't remember. I started working here as an employee in 1992. In 1999, I was offered to be a part owner. And we started with four owners then, Lloyd, Daphne, Joel, and myself. About uh, three years later, Joel left. So there was three of us for a while. And then about 11, 12 years ago, George Matthews, who is one of the current partner team members, um, joined on. Jordan manages the, the dairy side of the operation, the cows, the parlor staff, et cetera. I manage the four staff members on the cropping team. We, we take care of the feeding. Nutrient management plan, which involves manure removal, cropping, the equipment, basically anything that doesn't directly relate to the dairy cow. Gotcha. And and so how uh, before um, you joined the the Rosie Lane team, uh, what were what was your uh, previous uh, experience likes? So I I grew up just a mile down the road, and uh, okay, just a mile down the road was born and raised there. I have I've not moved more than two miles from <laughs> my whole life. <laughs> So I lived, I lived a mile west of the dairy. Now I live a mile north of the dairy, um, but I didn't move far. Uh, nice. So I uh, grew up there, uh, had six acres. My dad was a UPS driver. We had sheep as kind of my 4-H project, um, which kind of grew into my dad's hobby after I got out of 4-H. And my grandpa had, um, or my dad grew up out in Neosho, which is about a half hour from here, had a uh, 50 cow dairy um, that he kept working on until he was, geez, I think close to 90. I would go out there. When I was younger, I'd go out there in the summers for a week at a time to help out. And I think that's what kind of got me interested in farming. And uh, Lloyd's younger brother, Dennis, was in my class. And uh, Lloyd was having knee surgery. And he asked if I was willing to come up and help out with chores for a while when I was 16. So I came up to help with chores and, uh, I guess since then I've have missed uh, haven't missed too many days of coming to the farm. Well, that's a that's a pretty unique story um, for sure. You know, and it's one that probably resonates a lot with people in our industry of agriculture and taking on 
the family farms or farms close or whatever. So it's, it's definitely a, a great story. Um, and certainly when you look at the time lapse of, you know, going and helping your grandfather on his 50 head operation uh, and, and now going into work with a thousand head dairy is uh, it's pretty uh, a vast change over the years for sure. Right. And it's, it's a little different flavor being it's not, it's not family. Um, it's not that it's unheard of, but far less common than family farm being handed down. So it was a unique uh, opportunity that Lloyd and Daphne, they saw that they didn't, they didn't want to do all the work. They wanted to have a business that uh, could continue on once they were ready to retire. So they, uh, they offered uh, that opportunity to Jordan and myself to, to uh, do a, go down a little different road than maybe some family farms did. That's perfect. That, that, that's a great story. Um, so now you kind of have mentioned that you, you do a lot of the cropping, um, a lot of the, I guess you could call it uh, manure management or waste management. Um, give us kind of an overview of, of what cropping and, and growing the feed for the, for the dairy uh, kind of entails and looks like. So at Rosie Lane, we just, we only grow crops that we can feed the cows. So we'll feed, um, we'll grow rye um, as a cover crop and as a uh, harvestable forage. Um, otherwise, it's mostly corn silage and alfalfa. We do have a few farms where we grow some wheat to keep to keep a rotation on some farther away ground that we're using that we're not going to plant alfalfa to just to kind of give some uh, a rotation change uh, rather than just corn corn forever. So that's kind of our. Uh, the crops that we the crops that we grow, um, our manure mostly goes out uh, via drag hose. We we big goal of ours is to try to connect connect land parcels so that we can run a drag hose versus trucks. Right. So that that's been a goal of ours is to try to try to get uh, connected land to run drag hose to make manure more efficient. For sure. And I guess out of curiosity, um, what kind of acres do you look at to have to be able to feed a thousand, thousand head, uh, you know, approximately? So we're, we're a little strong right now. Um, we struggled for land for quite a while, but uh, right now we're about 2000 acres and that allows us to grow all of our forage and about 50% of our corn grain needs. Wow. So the other 50% of the corn grain we purchase. Right. And as a dairy in an ideal world, you probably want that number of cows to be kind of equivalent with the amount of acres you have to grow forage, simply from the standpoint of it's easier to buy corn grain than it is to buy forage or fine forage. For sure. It, it seems like uh, forage is certainly a lot more weather dependent on as a commodity, um, trying to gather alfalfa bales when it's a dry year seems a lot more challenging than maybe finding corn grains that, uh, you know, maybe somebody has from last year or still saving milk for a better price or whatever. Right. Exactly. There, every, there's, there's corn abound. <laughs> you look at the co-ops in the fall and yeah. you, you see the big piles up just piled outside. You know, that finding grain corn is not a challenge, but forage is, is not as easy. It doesn't have a, a, a market per se, a market price. It's, it's kind of, when you go and buy that, it becomes more challenging. So it's, it's been our goal to, at a bare minimum, raise our own forage. Right. And so when you say you're raising your own forage, are you um, yourselves and the operation doing all of this field work yourself from, you know, breaking the ground to seeding to, 
maintaining it to harvesting it or are you doing some custom work on that respect? So currently we hire out the liquid manure and we hire on some help to, to move the solid manure out as well. Um, twice a year when we do the big hauls, we have, we use sand bedding and we have a single stage, uh, really low tech manure system. So we suck the water off and we go in and dig the solids out. Right. Those two operations, we, we hire and help. But as far as um, tilling the ground, planting, spraying, we, ha- we do all that in-house. We have our own forage harvesting equipment. We do all of that as well. Every once in a while, we'll, about 50-50, we'll let the co-op spread fertilizer. We'll spread it depending on who has time. Right. Interesting. And, and most of this crop is going in in that spring time frame? Or? Yes. I mean, the... Uh, Obviously, established alfalfa, those acres, about 500 acres a year that that come into the year, they're already growing. We usually seed about 200 acres a year, about seven, 800 acres of corn silage, and then the balance, whatever's left over is either wheat or corn grain. When it comes to, you know, harvest, the, the harvest on dairy is obviously going to be a little bit longer than a traditional grain farm or maybe just a standalone dairy operation where you guys are probably cutting alfalfa fairly early and probably for a fairly long time, all the way until you knocking down your corn a little bit later in the year. What's the harvest schedule kind of look like for the operation? Yeah, once once uh, the chopper sits around for a good share of the year, but when it's time to use it, uh, you better hope it's ready. We usually start, <laughs> we usually start about May 20th, give or take on an average year. Okay. I mean, we'll, we'll, shoot for, we'll shoot for bud stage when we harvest first crop by far being the most important on the timing because the quality changes the quickest. Right. So we are not, we're, we don't chase what I will call rocket fuel for haylage. Uh, we want something in that RFQ of 150 to 160 is kind of our goal, which is lower than uh, some dairies. The reason we do that is we don't, we want to have enough fiber in the ration not to have to add back straw. And if, if the haylage is, is uh, too high protein and too, too digestible, then, then you got to add in a buffer. And we'd rather just make our haylage be dual purpose, um, have some feed value there, but also act as that buffer. Right. So we shoot for that 150 to 160 RFQ. So typically an average year, we, we base that first crop on bud stage. And then every 30 days, every 28 days, excuse me, every 28 days after that is our typical rotation weather permitting. Right. Um, which makes our last cut, you know, somewhere mid-August. And by the 1st of September, we've we've got a couple weeks between the last cut of hay and 1st of September is usually corn silage time. Right. So so I guess, you know, just quick math would have us saying that if you're doing the first cut in May, you're getting three to four cuts of alfalfa a year? That's correct. We do four cuts in season. Um, we don't usually take a late cutting. Um, too many times got burned by um, a bad winter with too little residue. So unless we're really short on feed, typically take those four cuts during season. And is it kind of more of a, is it more appropriate for, or sorry, important for Rosie Lane to kind of make sure that they have an adequate amount of feed instead of an abundance amount of feed? I know that that's becoming a lot more popular in the alfalfa world is only trying to to manage it properly so that you're not actually carrying it over and you're letting that, that, that plant stay out in the, whether it's the winter or whatnot, but making sure that you don't take off as, 
everything possible and, and potentially risk a, a damaged crop the following year. Correct. We, as long as we're good on feed, we put a higher emphasis on stand health and uh, building what you leave there in the fall. The, the experts will tell you what you leave in fall, you'll you'll get back in the spring. Right. Um, so typically, we we do we manage our feed a little differently. We like to have we want to feed fermented feed, so we don't want to be you know making a feed and turning around and delivering it uh, through the feed mixer. We we shoot for. 16 months feed on hand at the end of the season. Um, we want to have some carryover. Great. And that, that leaves a buffer for a dry year or, or a wet year or a challenging year, depending what it is. Um, that just leaves a little bit of buffer. The more heads you got to uh, feed, the, the scarier um, a natural, you know, disaster is rather yeah. than just feeding hand to mouth. We're always a uh, little insurance, we'll call it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, what's your storage um, techniques kind of for the alfalfa? We everything goes into uh, bunker silos right now. We do uh, they're open ended okay. bunkers, so just concrete walls on a blacktop base. Our haylage bunkers are forty feet wide because of the less usage, so that we move an appropriate amount forward each day. Our corn silage bunkers are eighty feet wide. Gotcha. So most of the time they get to be about 20 foot tall and 250 foot long, but they're both open-ended. We don't have end walls in our bunkers. Both end wall, both walls are, are open? Yeah, both ends are open, yeah. So when, when it's empty, it's drive-through. Uh, that's uh, it's very interesting. And, and so just remind me again, um, your, you know, your responsibilities are kind of right up until that, that uh, forage is into the bunker, or are you also doing some of the feeding and, and nutrient management? Oh, my, we're responsible for preparing the bunkers, filling them, covering them, and feed out, my, my team is. Uh, man, managing the faces, the plastic, the tires, the, the feeder himself is has been a member of our uh, the cropping team. So I think that just, it's a little different than most dairies, but it kind of, it kind of morphed into that simply because that was always my job when we were at, you know, 70 cows or even even 300 cows, it was my job to feed and then take care of the crops. But as we've grown, I guess I continue to manage it simply because that is one of the responsibilities that I actually did uh, previous. For sure. And so then how many, I guess, how many uh, employees are reporting directly to yourself on this uh, cropping team? So our, our crop team is uh, four full-time members. I shouldn't say that, three and a half full-time members. We have three guys that are on the cropping team slash um, help with assist feeding. We have one guy that kind of does half time as feeder, half time as a maintenance person in the barn. And then I have a, uh, oh, a pretty good crew of what I'll call seasonal help to help us at harvest at uh, harvest time. And maybe here or there at planting. Right. At harvest time, right. you need eight to nine people on any given day to keep everything running. I just don't have enough everyday work to keep those that amount of people busy year round. So we've got our core group of full time and absolutely. Uh, we've got former employees that come back to help with harvest, retired neighbors, retired farmers, uh, a good crew of dedicated people that, you know, not don't have to be here all day, every day, but can kind of rotate in and out. And that's what, you know, I think a lot of farms throughout, 
America and, and Canada, where I'm from, you know, a lot of farms rely on that kind of seasonal help as a lot of guys are getting to call it, but you know, the, whether it's the, the dad that's moved off the farm to, for the sons to give way, or if it's an uncle or a cousin or whatever, you know, that, uh, that's what helps make any farm, any operation kind of more successful in any given year. Correct. Uh, welcome to Talk on Talks. Uh, again, today we're joined by Tim Strobel of Rosie Lane Holstein. And we're just uh, talking about his uh, contributions to the Rosie Lane team and uh, what he does with his cropping team. Um, one of the uh, question I got for you, Tim, is uh, what um, Rosie Lane has put in place or, or what they are using for um, what we'd call precision uh, technologies, uh, you know, how we can help with the feed management or, or something like that that's evolved over the years of your time there. So when I, when I started feeding cows, it was, uh, I memorized the ration and I memorized the order it had to be in and the, uh, what, what the scale had to say after each ingredient. Um, and we did that for oh, a number of years, probably eight, 10 years before we were convinced that we needed feeding software. Right. Um, and I was probably the most resistant to it simply because I, I could mix feed and, and do a pretty good job based on uh, my head, not what the computer was telling <laughs> me. But uh, the, the newer guys that come in, it's actually very helpful. Um, it's a lot easier to, to train when you actually, when you have something telling you how much to put in, when to start, when to stop, and to record what happened versus just go off your, <laughs> go off your intuition because not everybody can operate in those uh, circumstances. And, and uh, are you guys using self-loader mixers or um, buckets to load a, a pull-type mixer? Or? So we've we've had uh, many coon night reel augies, uh, long as I can remember, from a really little baby one up to uh, the largest machine they make. Always treated us well. We used it for about five years, and and uh, moved them on down the road before they got uh, too much work and un, and unreliable because feed mixer is something that runs 365 days a year and not, not like a chopper, you know, chopper is important, but that, you know, that only gets 300 hours a year, not 1500. Right. So we prioritize that feed mixer about three years ago, we took a little leap of faith and we purchased a trio a trio track, which is a self-loading feed mixer. Right. It has, it's got its own facer attached to it. It faces the feed. It loads itself obviously mixes, delivers. It's a feed truck that can do all aspects. So we took the payloader, the feed mixer, and the tractor, and we combined it into one unit. Right. In my opinion, this has saved significant amount of labor instead of having, we always fed with two people because our site is fairly spread out. And in the past, our, right. in the past, our goal was the same people were feeding that we're doing cropping. So let's get feeding done so we get out to the field. That's kind of was our mentality. So we fed with two people. So feeding have to schedule two people, especially on weekends, holidays, et cetera. That now we were down to feeding with one person. So the labor standpoint of it was a selling point. The other selling point for me was knock down feed. Um, when you face with a payloader, you, you know, you guess in the morning, how much am I going to need? Sometimes you get it right. Right. Most time you get too much, too little. Yep. So either you got a feed pile that's loose and just laying there till the next day, or you get to the last batch and somebody's sitting there with the payloader digging up your face to get the last little bit, neither of which are desired. Right. 
Um, with the self-loader, you there's very little at the end of the day if there's two skid loader buckets left laying on the ground. That's all it is because you face what you need. When you're done with that batch, you just stop, and the rest is remains in a solid, intact bunker face that has very little air infiltration. Right. And have you guys moved to a, a feed management system at all? As we've been using uh, TMR Tracker um, to track feeding since forever. Um, and this is directly, in the TRIOLA has got their own version of the same thing, you know, built right in. And, uh, and how has uh, that over the years evolved into a powerful tool? And, and what are some of the, you know, maybe tools that in TMR Tracker that you're using on a regular basis now? So, yeah. I, that's more of what my job entails now rather than the actual doing it. My job is looking at what happened, analyzing what happened, and either reporting that, you know, using that information to make adjustments without actually being uh, on site and seeing it happen, which can be a dangerous road to go down. I'm still of the nature of life. Of I'd like to put my eyes on it before I tend to make corrections versus just look at numbers. Absolutely. It is a tool. That has been helpful. I mean, I can track deviations. I can track by operator. You know, when there's a, a new guy doing it, how's, how's he learning? Is he catching on? Are we, how many mistakes are we having? Um, I can go back and make sure that everything was recorded load by load. Occasionally I'll do that when I do a monthly report and I see some number that I see every month is out to lunch. I can go batch by batch and find out if it's a certain operator not logging something right, skipping something. Um, so that is a tool I use, but most of what I use it for is just recorded history. What happened? What's that monthly report? What do I, um, we enter that number into uh, several, three different platforms um, is to analyze our efficiency on the dairy in that given month. And are you, do you have a way or, or have you, gone to putting um, scales in the yard or something like that where you can put your forage or, or feed inventory as it comes off the field directly into TMR Tracker so you can do bunk management and all that inside that program? So we do have a driveway scale. I, uh, I did have okay. to... I did have to look that up. It was longer than I thought. It was 2013. <laughs> uh, it's, been, it's been there longer than I thought already. Okay. Um, so when we first got the driveway scale, it would seem like um, we would weigh, you know, a couple loads a day and count loads. You know, before that, it was look at the bunker at the end and say, oh, yeah, we got about this much in it. It's, it's a good way to get good yields. <laughs> yeah. um, Lloyd, Lloyd will tell you uh, any, way, any way to be humbled or to, uh, to get the uh, – your. <clears throat> your uh, ego in check is to uh, put in a driveway scale. Right. Um, that, that tells the real story. Um, so for many years, we, we just counted loads and weighed a few loads here or there. Um, the biggest reason we purchased the scale was there was a time, like I spoke earlier, we didn't have enough ground to grow on forage and we had to purchase it. Right. And purchasing by the acre is uh risky at best um, when you drive it across the scale you know exactly how many tons you brought in you buy it by the ton not by the acre because you somebody might think they got 30 ton yield and only gotten 20. right so that's that's the reason we put it in um 
eventually we put in a system attached to our scale that um, called Scalehawk, which I believe now is being uh, marketed as inbound tracker. Correct. Yep. So this Scalehawk system changed significantly how we manage uh, because now every truck is weighed. And at the end of a crap, at the end of the season, I know exactly how many tons went into each bunker. And so are you, are you just tracking all of that through the inbound tracker software or is it going integrated right into TMR tracker or, or how are you managing that? So to my knowledge, this inbound tracker is just released. Right. When it was a Scalehawk system, it was not integrated. Correct. Um, I understand that now or very soon it will be able to. That is one aspect of TMR tracker that I, I guess I haven't there again, the tool is only as good as the information you put into it. Right. I'm, I still do it on paper. I've done it on paper forever. So <laughs> I write down, I track what, what we have for our inventory. Let's just say we had 2,600 ton of first crop. So the scale says 2,600 ton. I take a 90% factor of that to figure and shrink. And I write that on my inventory page. We start feeding out that bunker. We start on a date. I go by TMR tracker, how many tons were fed in this time period. And then I just subtract that from my inventory. Right. So there's a portion of it that I still do by hand, which sounds like now would be able to be done automatically. All I got to do is, is input that information. But to this point, it's been pencil paper. Right. And, and that's the industry that I certainly work in is where we're always trying to improve those systems for for producers like yourself and, you know, if it alleviates, you know, for some people that might want to get rid of the notepad and papers, and there's certainly other people out there that are doing both and, and some that are doing just the technology side of it. But, you know, I think we're always advancing and even in the, the dairy industry or beef industry um, with our TMR tracker products and, and now, you know, this inbound tracker, we're seeing more and more of precision egg entering these things, um, these industries especially when you look at inside of a dairy, I know that um, a lot of dairies have electronic feeding systems or electronic milking systems and tracking systems. Um, certainly gone are the days of, you know, going out with your milk pail and, and grabbing a pail of milk and that was milking. Um, but in your, you know, approximately, I guess it would be uh, 30 years of working in the industry. What are like, what are some of the biggest changes that have had a positive uh, impact on, on your day-to-day -day operations? I would I would say that you know the technology has really kept up. When you melt fifty cows in a barn and you fed them by hand and you milked them by hand, and you as the owner operator did all those tasks, you knew when something was off. You didn't need a computer. You didn't you know need that kind of data. Right. To tell you that. But as things grow and you don't you can't do everything yourself, you have to find a way to track that information because. Not every person that does that job has that ability. So being able, as you grow, that's, every, you know, if somebody asked me, well, what, or somebody told me, I'm sorry, the other day that what you should do is just record, record, record. Whether you use the information or not, someday you're going to need it. The more, the more data you can collect and record somewhere, at some point in time, you're going to need it. So I would say that that's where it has become, you know, a bunker that held 200 ton of feed or one that holds 20,000. It's a lot harder to guess that big one. And you, you got a lot more risk if you're wrong. 
So that's as thin as the size of everything grows, having actual real data helps manage. I can't imagine guessing what I have or thinking, oh, that bunker's full, that should get us to the end of the year. <laughs> I'd be very I'd be very nervous with, with that. Uh, I could only imagine. So then I guess the, the next question to my, the next question, the final question of the, of the, the podcast today is in the next, uh, let's say 10 years, what, what do you think technology could do to continue this, you know, evolution of, of technology on the farm uh, that you believe that is something that is missing from maybe your industry or, or the industry in general? What do you think could, could make it easier or what do you think is coming? I looked at all the questions and I thought to myself, yeah, that's the one I'm going to struggle with. I'm really good at, really good at, this is what happened. This is what we did. This is how we solved the problem. Um, this worked. This didn't work. I, this was a good decision. This was a poor decision. <laughs> seeing, to the, seeing the future is awful tough. Things change so fast. Just look in the last two years, would any of us guess that you, you can't get a GPS receiver because we're missing a little chip? Right. Um, they can't, they can't send out new cars because they have no wheels to put on them. I mean, it's things change so fast. Technology is, is so quick. I mean, there's robotics and milking now. That's become pretty common. That's not really even new anymore. If you want it, you can get it. Um, autonomous tractors are right around the corner from what I understand. Uh, I believe that labor is going to continue to be a challenge, and some of that mechanization is going to filter in maybe quicker than we think. Uh, also, it's the, you know, the size and the size and scale thing, I think is tough. Right. Uh, dairy is a, dairy is a business just like any other business. And all you hear about is consolidation. Company A bought company B. Next year they buy company C. It's just, you know, fewer and fewer options and the ones that there are are just bigger and bigger. For that economies of scale, they can they can afford that those fancy technology that auto, auto mechanization to to make everything automatic versus you know a, a smaller guy with less ability to carry that overhead. Right. So I really think that what what's got us to this point and is going to be even more important is is attention to detail and making sure we do the little things right because we don't have quite as many units to spread that uh, overhead over. So we've got to make sure that the details are, are perfectly in place 100% of the time in order to uh, make up for the difference in, in quantity. For sure, for sure. Well, yeah, I think that's, a, that's one of the exciting parts about the, the day-to-day industry I work in of precision agriculture is what's next and what's coming. And I think there's a lot of us inside the inside the industry that don't even you know can't even wrap our heads around where we'll be in 10 years but it's certainly fun to watch and fun to be a part of um but thank you very much for joining us today tim this was a this was a great conversation and i really enjoyed the knowledge i learned today all right very well it's good talking to you as well awesome and to our listeners thank you very much for joining this episode of TopCon talks agriculture with our guest tim strobel from rosie lane holstein i look forward to chatting with you next time take care everyone mm-hmm.